Hello, my name is Marielle Harris, and I'm one of the producers for 49. Just a quick note that this episode was recorded in September 2021 before Judd Devermont departed the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here's the episode. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and we're joined by Bemba Dizolele, Africa Senior Advisor at the International Republican Institute, a lecturer in African Studies at the John Hopkins School, and a CSIS Senior Associate. Judd, tell us about the history of U.S. policy towards the DRC. I'm sure I'm going to upset someone with this, and it's very long, but here I go. The United States established a consulate in Leopoldville, now Kinshasa, as early as 1936. The Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA, dispatched a team to procure access to Congolese uranium, a key ingredient for the atomic bomb. The U.S. government had economic interest in other mineral resources as well, including cobalt, magnesium, copper, and diamonds. The Belgians had done very little to prepare Congo for independence and persuaded Washington to prohibit its diplomats from meeting with Congolese contacts until six months before independence. The U.S. government attempted to ensure the election of a pro-Western government by identifying and supporting pro-U.S. leaders. They saw Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba as volatile and dangerous. Shortly after independence, Lumumba faced a serious secessionist threat in the mineral-rich region of Katanga, which was supported by Belgium. He appealed to the United Nations to help and insisted that peacekeepers evict Belgian forces from his country. Lumumba threatened to invite the Soviet Union to intervene and later made good on his promise when another secessionist conflict erupted in the Kasai. This caused panic in Washington. CIA Director Alan Dulles believed Lumumba was, quote, a Castro or worse, end quote. And in August, the agency cabled the CIA station chief in Leopoldville that, quote, Lumumba's removal must be an urgent and prime objective, end quote. Lumumba was eventually removed from power by Colonel Joseph Mobutu in September and put under house arrest. He briefly escaped and then was transferred to Katanga, where he was badly beaten and executed by Katangan soldiers and a Belgian officer on January 17, 1961. Many Congolese blamed the United States for Lumumba's death. While Mobutu stepped back from power to allow the politicians to try to govern, another rebellion broke out in eastern Congo. The Simbas, a rebel group led by supporters of Lumumba, started gaining territory and by the second half of 1964 had captured Stanleyville, now Kisangani, taking 2,000 hostages, including U.S. diplomats at a small U.S. consulate there. The U.S. and Belgians conducted a hostage rescue known as Operation Dragon Rouge. In November 1965, Mobutu decided to overthrow the civilian government to, quote, avoid prolonged political crisis, end quote. While the United States did not orchestrate or support Mobutu's coup, it's true that he turned to the U.S. Embassy for advice and regularly consulted with U.S. officials. He rapidly became a key partner for the United States, receiving invitations to meet with Nixon, Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush at the White House. 
Mobutu was closely aligned with the United States during the Cold War, even providing sanctuary for U.S.-backed Angolan rebels during the Angolan Civil War. But he was adept at playing the United States off its adversaries. In 1975, he told the U.S. ambassador that he purchased tanks from China because they had no choice but to turn elsewhere. A year later, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger recommended the United States sell tanks to Mobutu. For all these reasons, the United States came to Mobutu's rescue when he faced threats to his regime. Carter authorized the provision of transport and logistics support to European forces to fight a Fikatangan rebel group in 1978. U.S. administrations went easy on Mobutu for all of those human rights abuses he committed, and they never pressed too hard for real economic reforms. By the early 1990s, Mobutu's continued rule had become untenable, and the United States had lost interest in defending his kleptocratic state. Following the Rwandan genocide, several African governments, including Uganda, Rwanda, Angola, Ethiopia, and Eritrea, conspired to remove Mobutu. They tapped a down-and-out rebel leader named Laurent Kabila and teamed him up with other Congolese dissidents to seize control. By the start of 1997, these forces had captured most of the country and the United States in April sent U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Bill Richardson to persuade Mobutu to leave power. A month later, Mobutu fled into exile and Kabila became the country's new leader. Kabila quickly fell out with his regional backers and war broke out again. The Rwandans and Ugandans this time backed Congolese proxies and Kabila found support from Angola, Namibia, and Zimbabwe. Often called Africa's World War, some 6 million people died during this conflict, which lasted until 2003. Kabila himself was assassinated in 2001, leading to the elevation of his son Joseph as the country's new ruler. U.S. diplomats tried to establish ties with Joseph Kabila, who was determined to consolidate his control and weaken his father's cronies. U.S. diplomats prioritized moving the country towards peace and elections. One former ambassador said that he had to rely on the political prestige of the United States because additional resources were not forthcoming. The United States was involved in talks in Sun City, South Africa, to establish a transitional government. It was like, quote, trying to herd kittens, end quote, recalled the U.S. ambassador at the time. With assistance of U.N. peacekeepers to manage logistics, Congo held its first multi-party elections in 41 years in 2006. Kabila was elected president and won a second term in 2012. The U.S. government remained engaged in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but with uneven success. It trained what it hoped to be a model battalion, which was later accused of committing gross human rights abuses. Washington backed the formation of the Forces Intervention Brigade as part of the U.N. mission to go after negative forces in the eastern Congo, scored a major success against the Rwandan-backed M23 rebel movement, but failed to make additional headway. The United States also was concerned about the rebel Allied Democratic Front, known as the ADF, which in recent years has become aligned with ISIS. Kabila's tenure was supposed to end in 2016, but he used a series of delayed tactics known as glissement to stay in power. The Obama and Trump administrations ramped up pressure on Kabila to respect the Constitution, including by imposing sanctions on his inner circle. He finally agreed to hold elections in late 2018, expecting to pass the baton to his handpicked successor. Kabila's plan, however, failed. Instead of his heir apparent, all indications were that opposition leader Martin Fayulu had come in first place. Kabila quickly pivoted, backing Felix Chitsakedi, who probably finished second, as the winner. Controversially, the United States endorsed the election result. Titsukedi, who slowly has freed himself from Kabila's influence, has received considerable high-level attention in Washington. He's met with Secretaries Pompeo and Blinken and received a call from Vice President Harris. Titsukedi is one of the five African leaders to attend Biden's climate summit. Nicole, do you have a major U.S. success or failure that you want to talk about? 
I'm going to talk just for a moment on one that you already mentioned, which is the U.S. position in supporting the outcome of the 2018 presidential election, in which, as you said, Felix Giscate did take the presidency. So what we know about this is that most observer accounts, including the Catholic Church and DRC, which was something like 40,000 strong, had observers deployed across the country and the math that came out didn't match theirs. So there was pretty widespread belief that, in fact, Tisa Katie did not win, and then Martin Feilu did. There was quite a bit of scuttle around this as observers continued to hold the line. But the U.S. government decided pretty rapidly to stamp the election as flawed but credible. And, you know, I think that really did cost us some of the street cred with people in DRC around what it means to be a democracy and to stand up for those values everywhere in the world. Many believe that Kabila and Jisakati struck a deal, right, in which Kabila believed he would still have quite a bit of control behind the scenes. And that hasn't really seemed to hold, which I think by all accounts is probably a good thing. But it doesn't mean that it was appropriate for the United States to endorse an election in which there was significant evidence that the winner was someone else. I don't think that means that we shouldn't engage with Chief Katie. I think either there's a lot of indications that there's some positive direction in that administration, but it's not okay to pick the winners. It's not okay to support when others do. It's not okay to set that precedent. And so even though I think we do need to continue forward in this relationship and that ultimately it's indistinguishable from the future of DRC, it's certainly not a posture that I hope the United States takes again in any election. So with that, Mbemba, what should the Biden administration strategy be towards the DRC now? Thank you, Nicole. I think the uh, Biden administration should actually turn whatever the U.S. has been doing so far upside down. And that is for a long time, the U.S. has engaged DRC, and this is over the last 20 years or so, is a humanitarian crisis. Congo is not a humanitarian crisis. It's first and foremost a political crisis, and the U.S. should treat it as such. So just saying that the U.S. has put in billions of dollars in humanitarian crisis, that is not helpful to most Congolese, because most Congolese are not recipients of that foreign aid, that humanitarian aid. That typically goes to one part of the country, known as the Kivus, or sometimes tourists, that sucks up all that so-called humanitarian aid. So for the rest of Congo, the U.S. is almost irrelevant. I think it's time that the U.S. start really treating Congo as the potential partner that we say it is, right? So on one level, the world says, well, Africa is the uh, continent of the future with resources, with the youth, both mineral resources, natural resources, and human resources. But then we in the United States don't really act like we believe that. There's like a big gap between the narrative and the reality on the ground. And Congo is one example of that, where over the last Again, 20 years or so, 24 years or so, we've been funding the U.S., that is, in terms of billions of dollars, funding the U.N., for instance. But in the end, to deliver what? What do they deliver for the taxpayers, American taxpayers? And they're definitely not delivering much for the Congolese. So I think that's one place that we need really to invert our priorities and go at the source of the issue. So, Vemba, you're talking about changing the narrative on Congo within U.S. policy circles, rethinking some of these investments. Those are really big ideas anyway. But I want you to push a little further. What is the way in which we do that in your mind? 
One way is we need to treat TRC in the way we treated Korea. Remember, South Korea was not particularly a perfect place when the U.S. engaged after the war. There were coups, country coups, there were corruption, all kind of problems. But the U.S. had decided that South Korea was a partner worth fighting for and worth sticking with. So the U.S. did that. And today, Korea is what we know. It's a powerhouse. It's a democracy. It's a military power. The U.S. is still present to help them, but they've come a very long way. In terms of the DRC, we've taken a different approach. So to me, if elections are not good, okay, so what? Let's continue supporting them until they get it right. If the military is not performed exactly as we wished, there were cases of rapes and other abuses, Armies are known to do that. Armies are not Boy Scouts. Armies are designed to destroy. And when there is a lapse in justice or governance, they typically go the wrong way. We've seen this with Canadians in Somalia. Who thought Canadians can commit abuses? We saw Canadian Special Forces committing abuses in Somalia. We saw the U.S. Army committed abuse in Iraq. So it's not a particular purview of one military or another. Training one battalion and then saying, well, they committed violence, therefore we're going to disengage. It's a very weak position for a superpower to take when they're trying to help a country get on track. My sense, my recommendation will be, well, let's engage. Let's engage. Let's continue engaging and see where it goes. If we've spent over, by now, I don't know, $80 billion, I don't have the number in front of me, but if we've been putting in about $1 billion, at least in humanitarians, to the UN, without counting the other process, 20 years, we've spent a lot of money, but going to places that we actually do not account for. Why not spend that in security sector reform? Why not spend that in boosting the economy? Why not spend that in encouraging U.S. investors? And I'm talking big companies in the other sector in DRC. Vamba, Congo, Kinshasa, and Congo, Brazzaville are known for la société des ambianceurs et des personnes élégantes. Their society of ambience makers and elegant people, also known as la SAP. Most listeners may remember a Guinness ad that featured several SAPR in 2014. Can you talk about this Congolese subculture? The subculture of the SAP, which uh, straddled the both sides of Congo River, like you just said, Nicole, started quite a while back over, wow, this probably like the late 70s, early 80s. This were literally, you know, Zaire particularly had gone to authenticity, which was that we want to be us. We don't want to wear jacket and suit and ties. We want to wear something else. So the entire African culture was promoted. But the youth led by the likes of Papa Wemba, that we all know of good memoir who's left us since, but also a fellow named Nyarkos. His name actually was Mombele, but he adopted the Greek name of Nyarkos Tavros, who was a big Greek shipping magnet. So an entire subculture developed, and part of it was that les sapeurs, they do not fight. So when you're well-dressed, you have to behave with class. And class, you don't sweat. A person with class doesn't insult other people. And when you go on the dancing floor, you dance a certain way, such as you don't disrupt your ensemble. So that's kind of the background of the sapper. But that also extended, if you will, to even the political elite. They didn't call themselves sappers. 
So if you look at somebody like Omar Bongo, Sasung Gweso, even Mobutu, everything they wore were designed. So Mobutu was into Hermes and other things. I remember interviewing Mobutu's widow, the, the former first lady, and asking what were the brands that Mobutu was wearing. So she went on and told me an entire spectrum of brands. And, and I remember asking her, who chose this stuff for the president? She said, I did. Right. So there was this culture. It actually spanned not just the musician and the youth, but it actually went all the way to the political class. And that has remained to now, where when you pay close attention, I was talking to a colleague who worked on, on Capitol Hill about some Congolese politician who showed up in, in D.C. when there was a lot of friction with Kabila when he didn't want to step down. And she calls, he say, imagine he showed up in our store on the hill with his Louis Vuitton bag. <laughs> now, this is a, this is a politician, an advisor to Kabila who shows up on Capitol Hill with a Louis Vuitton bag. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.